Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I'm your host, Andrew Brandt. That music here is from my son, Sam Brandt. Follow him on Boy Blue Tunes. This week, I want to talk about college athletics. I've noticed throughout the pandemic so many cuts, and uh, especially men's sports and non-revenue sports. I wanted to talk about saving those sports. I saw an article about Clemson track and field, both winter, uh, indoor and outdoor, along with cross-country, being saved. So I called up the lawyers who saved them, and we had a great conversation. You're going to hear a lot about Title IX today. We're coming up on 50-year anniversary in 2022, equal opportunities for both sexes and, in our context, in sports. Fascinating conversation ahead with two lawyers that are true freedom fighters for women's and men's athletics that have been cut at colleges and universities across the country. That conversation in a minute. First, a word from our sponsor, DraftKings. DraftKings is, of course, safe, secure, and reliable, and with playoff time, you can get into it on basketball. Any team that's still in contention, if you bet $5, that team wins. You cash in $200 in free credits. DraftKings Sportsbook offers great odds and promotions in baseball, hockey, and, of course, basketball, as we just talked about. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code ROSS, R-O-S-S, when you sign up. Turn that $5 into $200 in free credits. Bet on the basketball team of your choice. They win the next game. If they do, you claim $200 in free credits. That's promo code ROSS for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Wager paid out in site credits. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Now, on to our guests, Lori Bullock and Arthur Bryan, talking about Title IX and saving Clemson track and field. You know, one thing I've noted over the past year has really been the COVID effect on sports and probably no bigger effect in some ways than the lesser sports. When I say lesser, we all know about college football, college basketball, and of course the pro sports that we talk about so often on this show, but it really dawned on me over the past year how many cuts were made in the non-revenue sports. College football and college basketball get all the attention. And believe me, I know that being at Villanova, how much attention college basketball gets. But I wanted to get into some of the issues going on with the sports that don't get as much attention. And I was struck by an article I read recently where Clemson track athletes um, got their program reinstated. And I say got their program. It was done through the help of two uh, lawyers that did some incredible work in making that happen. I was really impressed with what they did and contacted them this morning. And here they are today. So tonight. Uh, so I'm recording on Monday evening, May 24th. I want to introduce to the program Arthur Bryant and Lori Billock, two lawyers that helped reinstate Clemson track and have done a lot more than that. And we're going to talk through that. So Arthur and Lori, welcome to the business of sports. Thank, Thank you. you. I want to go back and give some background to our listeners. Uh, we were talking before we came online, especially with Arthur about your background in title nine in working for college athletes, sort of the underrepresented uh, group of college student athletes I want to hear about your background leading up to the present situation and then how you connected and collaborated with Lori. All right. Well, great. First, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I will tell you, it started, so 
I actually first practiced law in Philadelphia from 1980 to 84. And while I was there, to my utter astonishment, I discovered there was a public high school that was all male and excluded girls. And so while I was there, I was the lawyer who brought the lawsuit that got girls into Central High School in Philadelphia. And their defense was that they had a separate but equal high school for girls. And I thought that phrase sounded very familiar. Um, and I said, well, if that's the justification they're going to use, we will prove that the boys' school is better than the girls' school, and it's separate and unequal, and then the girls will get it. And we did, and we tried the case, and within a year, I had girls into Central High School. And then I left Philadelphia to become a public interest lawyer at a place called Public Justice. It just had opened its doors. And I was there one year, and the National Women's Law Center comes to me and says, Arthur, we have the very first Title IX case in the country for women athletes being discriminated against. Um, and it's ready to go to trial, or will be soon, against Temple University in Philadelphia. Mm. And you, we have done our research. You are the only lawyer in America to have tried a separate but equal case <laughs> in the last, like, 30 years, uh, much less in Philadelphia, involving men and women. Um, and we'd like you to be our lead trial counsel. And so I agreed to be the lead trial counsel. We started to try the case. And after three weeks of trial, the case settled with Temple agreeing to treat women and men equally. Um, and that sort of was the start of my whole Title IX practice. But what was, I think, really important for people to understand up front is Title IX is fundamentally a law about equality. It's about sex discrimination. It basically says, any school that receives federal funds, which is almost every school, cannot discriminate on the basis of sex, period. End of discussion. Whether there is COVID, it doesn't matter. Whether the school is making money or losing money, doesn't matter. And it applies way broader than sports. So when Title IX first passed, there were women weren't allowed in certain graduate programs. They couldn't do math or science. All of that has changed. And it's made enormous progress. But the place it's most visible is in sports. But sports is the only area of, of education where they actually have totally separate programs for men and women, for males and females. And you can look at the two programs. And basically, the basic principle is separate but equal. That if you're going to have separate programs for men and women, they have to offer equal opportunities to play, equal athletic financial aid, and equal treatment. And that's all it's really about. It's, it's treat them equally, uh, provide them equal opportunity and equal athletic financial aid. And ever since 1987, I guess, when we finished the Temple University case, going forward, that's what got me involved. And I've been doing case after case against schools that are typically eliminating women's teams when they're already violating Title IX. And when the women's look to say, what could I do to you know, make sure that my team gets reinstated? The answer is pretty simple. You just enforce your rights under Title IX because schools have been violating them for decades at this point. You know, it's one other thing I just want to say, which is yeah. while I say women, and it is usually women because women are the ones being discriminated, because the law is about equality, uh, and it's not, it's about gender equality. You can't discriminate against either men or women. 
And so that's why Lori and I were so proud to then use it for the first time ever. And I've been doing this all these years. It was the first time ever we represent, or I represented men because Clemson was actually discriminating against men by depriving them equal opportunities to play sports while depriving the women of equal athletic financial aid and equal treatment. And that's what the law is about. It's about equality and no discrimination. I think there's two things to really pick up on. Um, that the general audience listening to this that are not as as conversant on Title IX are interested in, that really struck me. Number one, that Title IX, people think of it as a sports law. And it's not a sports law. It's a sexual equality law that we talk about in our context in sports. And the second thing you talked about was separate versus equal. I think a lot of people think Title IX, you just have the same numbers, right? So you have you add some women's rowing positions, you add a women's sport here, you add a women's triathlon team, you're fine. But it's much deeper than that. Uh, and I think those are two points I want to emphasize from what, what you just said. Lori, tell us how you got involved and how you met this uh, this character from Philadelphia. Yeah. Now, thank you for having me as well. Um, so I started doing Title IX work um, in 2018, I filed a lawsuit against Eastern Michigan University, uh, got their tennis team reinstated, uh, lacrosse team added to the, the women, um, along with bringing their entire program into compliance with Title IX. And so uh, when Brown University announced that they were cutting teams, uh, some of the women on the teams at Brown reached out to um, me and my firm and we're uh, I'm based in Des Moines, Iowa, um, so far, far away from <laughs> Arthur and you. Um, so they reached out and, um, you know, we started looking into whether or not the, the cuts that they had proposed were going to violate Title IX. And in that process, discovered that original class counsel for the Cohen v. Brown case was still on the Cohen v. Brown case. Huh. And so uh, reached out to Arthur and Lynette and met them through that way. And um, Arthur and Lynette asked if we would be willing to come on and uh, provide help because um, I was the most recent person to try <laughs> one of these Title IX cases. So they, they brought me on and uh, Arthur and I have been working together ever since and, uh, you know, getting teams reinstated around the country. And before we get to the Clemson case specifically, is there a prototype? Is there a paradigm? Is there a blueprint, Arthur or Lori, for how these cases arise? Does it really come after a cut or a series of cuts and you are contacted by who? The athletes, the, co yeah. the donors for the athletes, the parents of the athletes? Well, Tell so us a, a, a basic cookie cutter approach if there yeah. is. Yes, there basically is. Um, it is that the school eliminates one or more women's teams. Um, sometimes they're also eliminating men's teams. Right. But either way, they're eliminating women's teams. When they are not already in compliance with Title IX, and after the teams are gone, they will still not be in compliance with Title IX because they are not offering men and women equal opportunities to participate. And then we'll get contacted either by the actual women on the, on the teams or their parents 
or their coaches or the alumni. In several of the most recent cases, it was there was a huge group already formed. For example, you know, save Dartmouth swimming and diving, um, save Clemson track and field. And they will have been beating their heads against the wall for months trying to get the schools to reinstate the teams because they're just outraged at the eliminations. And someone will contact usually me first and say, um, do we have a Title IX claim here? And I'll take one look at the numbers because in this area, it really just comes down to the numbers in terms of participation opportunities. And I say, you have a very good Title IX case there. And the formula is basically, I write a letter. Um, I say to the school, I want you to understand, I've been retained by the women on this team. Um, you know, you're in violation of Title IX. Um, I'd like to talk with you and try to have you understand why and why it's important for you to just put the team or teams back, do some sort of a gender equity analysis and come up with a plan to get fully in compliance with Title IX in the next couple of years, pay my fees and I'll go away and you know, you'll get in compliance with the law and everything will be fine. But if you don't do that voluntarily, we will sue you. It will be a class action on behalf of all the women athletes and potential athletes in the school and it will cost you a fortune to get into compliance with the law. And you'll have to pay your attorney fees and my attorney's fees, which will be way bigger. And a judge will end up deciding what you have to do, as opposed to you deciding what you have to do to get into compliance with the law. And I will say in almost every one of these that Gloria and I have been in for the past year, um, the schools have voluntarily put the teams back and decided to get into compliance. There's only one that right now has been fighting at all. So if they're always coming back and putting these teams back, so what is their point? I mean, were they just trying to get away with it before? I think oftentimes they do get away with it. You know, they're counting on the fact that these women won't be willing to stand up and sue their university because, you know, that's that's not something that anybody enters college thinking, gosh, I hope in two years I get to sue the school that I'm going to and hoping to, you know, obtain a degree from. So I think a lot of times they are banking on nobody's going to call them out on it. I also think there are some schools, I mean, Lori's exactly right. It's impossible to know. They don't really tell us <laughs> what they were thinking. Uh, but I will say there's a couple of schools where it's very clear they had no idea what Title IX was. I mean, we're utterly blind to it. For example, a University of North Carolina at Winthrop, the law is basically if you have 60% undergraduate females, you should have very close to 60% of your undergraduate, I'm sorry, your, your intercollegiate athletes be females. UNC uh, Pembroke is exactly upside down. They have 60% undergraduate women they, and 60% of their athletes are men. Only 40% of their athletes are women. And they decided that for financial reasons, they should cut some teams. So what did they cut? A woman's team. It just was clear they had no idea even title existed or applied here. But in contrast, Dartmouth, when it made the announcement it was cutting the men's and women's teams, it put up on its website, this will bring, these cuts will bring our participation numbers in athletics exactly the same as undergraduate enrollment rates complying with Title IX. 
And if they had been exactly the same, they would have been complying with Torah, but they weren't even close. So Dartmouth screwed up the unlike basic addition and subtraction. It was stunning. So what they're really thinking varies from school to school and is always astonishing when they're plainly violating the law. Yeah. Go ahead, Laura. I was going to say, I think, you know, that's one thing, you know, Arthur's absolutely correct. This is the cookie cutter approach. I have one case that, you know, I'm, my firm is working on that I'm on that Arthur's not on, um, which is Michigan State University, which cut its women's swimming and diving team as well. Um, but that very much is the cookie cutter approach. A team gets eliminated and that's when there's enough outrage to actually hold the school, you know, hold the school liable for and, and hold them accountable to Title IX. Um, but that's what made Clemson a little more interesting. And, and it really broke that mold because we had these women who really their track and field team was going to keep going. Right. They they were not eliminated and they absolutely could have stepped back and said, well, you know, not affecting me directly. I get to keep playing my sport really sucks for the men, but I'm not going to I'm not going to threaten a lawsuit over it. And they were they were willing to step up and and hold the school accountable, even though, you know, it I think was even a bigger risk for them than they um, you know, the normal, because oftentimes these women, their sport has been eliminated. So what do you have to lose? Right. Let's talk about Clemson, the men's program. This is a Clemson gets a lot of attention, obviously, because it's one of the top football programs in the country. And football, of course, rules the world, as I know so well. And when you have a program being cut, people like, well, I, I know people will look at that and say, well, is football okay? <laughs> you know, uh, so what's going on with the other sports? Okay, but football is okay. So the cuts were at Clemson were the men's program, correct? The men's track, the men's, men's cross country. Yet the women got involved in supporting the men towards a reinstatement. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. And the article I read talks about you guys, you sort of talked about your blueprint approach where you got involved and... Take me through it, Arthur. There were no threats. There were no litigations. It was really kind of a inquiry level to the athletic department, to the athletic director. And I do want to get into this, in, these inferences made by you guys about some of the perks that the football players seem to be walking around with. So I'd like you to get into that. Sure. Well, so to start with, while I have been doing this litigation for a very long time, I had never, I'd only represented women. And the reason primarily is because it's the women who are being discriminated against throughout the country. Um, even now, almost 50 years after Title IX, the women are being deprived of equality across the board. But there are schools that end up cutting more men's teams than they should, so depriving the men of equality. And when I was contacted about those um, cases, I was very wary to do it because when I looked at the school, it looked obvious that the way the school could make up for it and get into compliance in terms of equality was just to cut another woman's team. And I didn't want to be a part of that. That was not what I was devoted to her. And I don't think what really Title IX was passed for, but the school could do it. But I got called about Clemson because Clemson, they had cut the men's track field and cross country team, primarily black 
male teams. And when I went to look at it, it was stunning because before the cuts were made, Clemson was actually providing equal opportunities for men and women. They were in compliance in terms of equal opportunities. They were discriminating against women in terms of athletic financial aid and treatment, but treating men and women in terms of opportunities equally. So they didn't have to cut anything. And yet they reached out and cut this primarily, predominantly black track field and cross country teams. And so I came up with a strategy and I called up Lori and I said, so how about we do this? And we had to meet with the athletes and they had to be committed to it as well because the women athletes were furious. This is like their, their brothers, you know, this is like the people they practice with, et cetera. Um, and they had to be educated a little bit about how they were being deprived of athletic financial aid and that the treatment differences were illegal. And so on a Friday, I sent a letter to the president of the university um, saying, I represent the male athletes on the track, field, and cross-country team. And unless you reinstate those teams and agree to get in compliance with Title IX in terms of equal opportunities for men, I will file a class action against you on behalf of all the male athletes and potential athletes at Clemson. Um, and on the following Monday, Lori sent a letter saying, hi, I represent all the women in the athletic program. Um, and unless we know about the men's threatened suit, and we're fully supportive of that, but unless you also give women equality in terms of equal opportunities, I'm sorry, equal athletic financial aid and equal treatment, we're going to file a class action on behalf of all the women athletes and potential athletes at the school. So Clemson became the first school in the country to be simultaneously threatened with Title IX lawsuits by both its men and women athletes for discriminating against them in different aspects of the athletic program. And not surprisingly, Clemson wanted to talk. <laughs> so did you, you never litigated. You never we litigated. Against we didn't Clemson. get that far. We didn't have to. So they wanted to talk. Continue. I'll let Lori take it from here. <laughs> yeah. So they they reached out. Um, you know, one thing Arthur and I were willing to work together. We knew that in the end, both the men and women wanted Title IX compliance and were supportive of each other's claims because you know what they really wanted was just gender equity across the board. And um, but Clemson insisted on meeting with us separately and keeping everything very separate. <laughs> But uh, it was very clear from the first meeting that Clemson was very interested in resolving the women's claims. And um, it, after the first meeting that I had with their council, they asked me for a list of the treatment and benefit issues that we could identify to help give them some idea of, you know, what we would be bringing in terms of, you know, what would be in a petition. And I think, you know, Arthur can can weigh in, but they were less eager to settle with the men and we're going to stand on the, we think we're in compliance. We're going to, we have a plan to get in compliance and we don't need to reinstate the teams. So I went back to the women and I had a meeting with the women and I should say, you know, I, I can't tell you how many conversations that I've had with women where the undertone to the entire conversation is, well, at least we get to play, right? right? So we don't, 
we don't all have our own locker and we only have two showers that actually work and the bathroom three of the five stalls are broken but we still get to play right right and and so that's really the mindset that they come into these you know oftentimes they they come into the playing the sport as hey i get to play and i get to play at clemson i get to play at a division level you know division 1 level program and that's amazing and so you know first i have to sort of get past the no it's not just enough to play you know what what are the men's teams getting that you're not getting and so i had you know it wasn't even a very long meeting with these women less than an hour and um and i said so you know what are some of the things what if you if you i if i asked you for a list of things that are provided to the men's teams that aren't provided to any of the women's teams and so they start going through well the following things are provided to the men's football team and not given to any other team at all so we're talking they have three they have a bowling alley in the men's football facility they have a putt putt golf they have a lazy river they have a slide they have nap rooms they have uh you know their locker rooms have these giant leather lounge chairs that they sit in to watch you know footage of old games they have pool tables um they have their own cafeteria that nobody else eats at that has their own nutritionist they get three meals a day every day of the year and and the women start telling me you know the rowing women share three to a locker and they they don't even get their own lockers and the track and field women and uh, most of the olympic sports um get you know they only get breakfast and lunch and only tuesday through friday mm. you know and so they start naming these these really stark differences um they have one of the things that we were able to negotiate in the settlement are these they're called norma tech recovery boots yeah. and the football players all have their own pair meanwhile the women's olympic sports share five pairs amongst all of them all of the olympic sports so we're talking track and field cross country soccer tennis swimming anything like that that is a non-revenue sport they're all sharing five pairs of these you know recovery boots and this is not a cheap endeavor they're a $1000 a pair of boots so you know for the football team to have that and you know it just the differences were so stark they were incredible and one of the women said you know and this is probably one of the things the article gets at and obviously Clemson vehemently denies this but they said listen i'm not saying that that the the athletic department provides this but somehow all of the football players all have a a scooter that they drive around everywhere on campus and they all have the exact same car and it's a nice car like i had a friend who played on the football team and he started out with you know some used nissan and then 3 weeks later he had a brand new nice car that matched all the other football players cars and of course clemson said absolutely not we're not buying our players cars we would never do that we're not buying the scooters they all just go out and buy their own 
somehow, all these 18 year olds. So well, I- You're the electric scooters. Yeah, <laughs> they were really nice. So I provided this list to uh, Clemson's attorneys. Um, we had a phone call and from that moment on, you know, their entire tone was, we are ready to resolve this. We do not want to go to court. What do we need to do? Why, Arthur, did they say they cut the track and cross-country teams? They had no good answer. The, the one they first provided was that they had an increase coming of female undergraduate enrollment. And that was going to put them out of compliance with Title IX several years down the road if they didn't make some changes. Hmm. To which my answer was, but you've chosen to violate Title IX now <laughs> by discriminating against the men. You don't get to do that because you're worried you might have to otherwise discriminate against the women later. Um, and otherwise, they had no good answer. At one point, they actually were talking about, you know, saving money. Right. Everybody just looked at them and said, are you kidding us? This is Clemson University. <laughs> Well, then you point to the water slides. <laughs> um, there was also, this was never used as an explanation by the school, but what also started to come out was an argument that um, the football team or the coach or the athletic director, whoever was in charge of that, um, wanted to take a space that was the obvious space to have an outdoor track and field uh, competitive area for uh, the men and women and and take it for the football team. Um, and of course, if it becomes the football team versus anybody, right. they said it was going to be a football team. Well, I thought the answer would be money. And I thought it would bring in the word we sort of started this whole interview with was COVID, where we've seen this year so many of these programs get cut and get deep sixed. And thanks to you guys and others, a lot of them are back. I, I haven't even mentioned, I'd be remiss to not mention, my alma mater, Stanford, they had one of those groups you mentioned, yep. 36 strong. So Stanford with an endowment, I believe, of $26 billion, cut 11 sports, uh, and including fencing and, and synchronized swimming and others where didn't get a lot of attention because of the, what, are the sports, what the sports were, but they're reinstated. And this is this whole comeback, I, I call it, of a lot of these sports that were just sort of axed, and here they are. Um, it, you've been dealing with more than Clemson. Have you faced this COVID excuse? And I, again, it's hard to talk about a serious virus as an excuse, but have you faced that as a rationale for what's been going on? At, at most of the schools, yes, it is. We're worried about income. We have to take a look at and expenditures. We have to cut somewhere. It, originally, I mean, it wasn't at Brown University. Brown was very clear it had nothing to do with COVID. Um, they were even saving money. They were going to take the money they were spending on the teams they were cutting and put it towards the teams that they were saving, and that would give the teams they were saving a better chance of getting championships. That was the basic rationale advanced at several of the schools. But for most of the others, it was income is down because of COVID. And we have to make up for this somewhere. We have to cut our budget. And what was 
in the context of a Title IX analysis, it was utterly irrelevant. You can't discriminate against people because of a disease, because of COVID. Um, I mean, even then, you had schools saying, we're going to have our football team compete and none of the other teams. So we're only going to have men have a chance to play sports. Now, you could look at it and say, we're only going to put our male football players at risk of getting a deadly disease and not our women. <laughs> so you're not sure how to exactly look at that, right? But it was clearly, you know, trying to balance about money with with opportunities to play. And I think underlying, it's fascinating what you focus on, because at the core of a whole lot of these battles is the conflict between conceiving of intercollegiate athletics as part of an educational institution, as an you know educational activity, um, an extracurricular activity at an educational institution, or a business. I mean, nobody was saying, let's cut the drama program or the band because it's not making enough money, because they're not looking at drama and the band to make money. But all of a sudden, they're saying this about some of the sports when they're every bit as important to kids' education and to the institution as the band and the drama club. We'll get back to our special guest to talk about Title IX in a minute. First, a word from our new sponsor, Cuts Clothing. It's 2016. Their founder, Steve Borelli, set out to create clothes ready for every occasion the modern man faces. He started by reinventing the T-shirt. The end result is what GQ magazine calls the only shirt worth wearing. It's a soft, buttery fit. It's pro tri-blend tee. It's a bold new take on a classic design. It's the perfect t-shirt. It's the ultimate blend of high-quality cotton, polyester, and spandex. Cuts is a premium with a purpose. Each piece of clothing, and I wear it all the time, designed with custom-engineered fabric, is expertly graded for the perfect fit. It fits my body well. Uh, it's got slim cuts, regular cuts, anything you need, army for every opportunity. It's not just a lifestyle. It's not just clothing. It's office leisure apparel for the sport of business. Get 15% off your first order by going to cutsclothing.com slash BOS. That's for business of sports. That's cutsclothing.com slash BOS for 15% off the only shirt worth wearing, Cuts Clothing. You know, what's so interesting is that we talk about a lot on this program and in my sports law courses, name, image, likeness, which is kind of the hot issue right now, of course. So athletes making money off their brands, social media, cameo, et cetera. And, and all the exploitation of the Trevor Lawrence's of the world. But I think what you said, Lori, really resonates. A lot of these athletes, they just want to play. They you do. Know, and, and I've talked to a lot of athletes I hire as sort of research assistants that come to law school, former athletes, because of the discipline they have and because of what they've managed their time so well being college athletes. And you're so right. They don't think about NIL. They don't think about being able to go market their brand and whether they're worried about bringing an Adidas deal when their school's a Nike school. I mean, they just want to play. And this is sometimes gets lost, and I'm, I'm guilty of it because I talk about big-time college athletics, but it's really a, a, something you said that just will stick with me a long time. They just want to play. And, yes, they talk about the benefits football players get, but can they just play? Yeah. Well, that's true of the men, too. I yeah, mean, the non-revenue sports. Yeah. yeah. Well, and 
the other thing is, you know, you talk about you hire these, um, you know, former college athletics athletes. It's because of the benefits that they get from being a college athlete. You know, there's been numerous studies looked at this and and articles have looked into all of the benefits that college athletes get just from playing sports, you know, setting goals, learning to work on a team and cooperate, learning to time manage, you know, um, learning how to balance all of their, you know, their sort of their schoolwork and all of their athletics and understanding how they have a good balance between that. They, it's not just that they learn how to play their sport. Um, they learn a lot of skills and particularly for women, if you look at the CEOs of the top, you know, 500, the Fortune 500 companies, overwhelmingly, when you've got a woman in that position, she was a college athlete. So it really does, you know, it's the networking, it's the alumni supported, it's all the skills that they learn. That's why it is an educational benefit, right? It is something, it's not just playing the sports for everybody to watch and, you know, for the fans and the spectators, but it's something that the students get out of it as well. So true. I mean, I'm at Villanova. We have 650 student athletes. We have 24 sports and one makes money. Yep. And, and I don't think any of those 650 is mad because they're not, you know, they're not getting paid or they're not getting some endorsement. They just love it. Uh, Let's put a bow on this Clemson thing. So Arthur, I know they were, they were so nice to Lori and the women athletes. <laughs> how, did, how did you get the men's track program restored? Well, it was uh, a couple of different pieces. Um, first was they were in violation of Title IX by cutting them all, period. The law, they, they understood that. They, accepted. they understood that. They brought in a lawyer who was an outside lawyer who was a Title IX specialist who had actually litigated and settled two other potential cases with Lori and, and, and me in several months earlier, and he showed up and he made the usual first speech he makes, which is that they're doing nothing wrong and they're fully in compliance. <laughs> and you get past that first meeting and then we get down to actually talking about the details. And he knew they were in violation. And the only question was, were they, how far were they in violation? And what numbers were the right numbers to look at? And what were the numbers last year and this year and next year? And I basically you know, said, look, even by your numbers, they have to put back at least one of the three teams. Um, and then we could get into an argument about was it indoor or outdoor men's track and field. Um, but they also understood two things. One is that they were not going to settle with the men unless they settled with the women, because the women were dedicated to making sure that the men's team was satisfied too. And second, that if they put back any less than all three of the men's teams, they were going to have a huge PR campaign on their hands um, because Save Clemson Track and Field was not willing to settle for one. It wanted all three. And then there was a third thing that I think was a hammer they were very afraid of, which is that like I said, the track, field, and cross-country teams, particularly the two track and field teams, were primarily black teams. And a complaint had been filed with the Office for Civil Rights under Title VI of the federal laws saying that they were discriminating against minorities by eliminating these two teams. 
And that was out there pending. And what came out in the settlement negotiations was they were trying to get me to agree to settle those claims. Mm. And I said, no, 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 no. Those are not part of this lawsuit. I'm not settling any such thing. You want to get rid of those claims? The only way to do it is put all three teams back because it is not going to be part of this settlement. Um, and once it became clear, they were worried about that too, um, as well as the PR campaign that would continue from Clemson track and field across country. I think that was sort of the final, you know, that's what tied the ribbon up nicely and well. And, I, you know, I will tell you the off since then, while it wasn't part of a deal, since then the Office for Civil Rights has announced it's dismissing those claims because the teams were reinstated and, hmm. you know, there's no dispute anymore. I have a very crass question for you guys. Yeah. How do you get paid? <laughs> they pay us. That's it. These yeah. are the, I know these student athletes don't have any money. So. No, and, and we would never, I mean, I, I don't think Arthur would either. I feel comfortable talking for him. We would never charge student athletes for our time. Um, that's not why we do this. But uh, no, when we, when we work out the settlement negotiations, the school ends up paying our fees. Okay. So, um, you know, and it's sort of up to them as to how much that's going to be, because at any point in time, you know, after we send that first letter, they can tell us to put our pencils down, stop drafting your lawsuits, stop drafting all of your motions that you're going to need to file on day one. Um, and, Cause we're going to, we're going to find a way to do this, but um, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes they don't say that. And so, you know, we keep drafting and we get our lawsuit ready to file and we get our motion for preliminary injunction ready to go. All the briefing, all of the affidavits that go with that. Um, and, you know, that's just more and more money that the college ends, ends up paying for those fees. Right. I mean, I should be clear. Title IX, the law is, is that under Title IX, if you sue and win, then the school you sued and one against has to pay your costs and attorney's fees. Okay. And yep. we all know that going in. Um, now, in the Clemson case, for example, they were very clear with Lori, like I said, basically since it started, we want to settle with the women. Uh, and I and there was nothing that the women had to had to like go to court right away and get reinstated because nothing was cut from the women. Right. They didn't cut anything. Right. But the men, they cut the track field and the cross-country teams. So I was coming in from the start and saying, Either you're putting these teams back or we're going to court. And until you agree to put these teams back, I'm preparing to go to court. I'm getting, you know, I have a legal team. We're drafting papers. We're doing research, et cetera. So by the time we ultimately had an agreement, um, you know, they ended up paying us over $235,000 in legal fees um, just for the work we'd already done. And they ended up paying Lori a much smaller amount because she hadn't had to prepare to go to court so much. It's a good business. <laughs> well, yes, but there's an easy way to avoid it. Just go yeah. the law. <laughs> yes. And, Laura, you mentioned working with Michigan State. They've had a rough few years. Um, yes. PR in terms of their sports programs, and everybody knows what happened with the gymnastics program. Yeah. Uh, explain what you're doing. The swimming and diving? Yes. So they eliminated the women's swimming and diving team. Um, that creates enough of a 
a gap between, you know, what they should be providing in terms of athletic participation opportunities and what they are. And so uh, we have filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of the women's swimming and diving team. Um, we have 11 named plaintiffs in that case and um, sought a preliminary injunction to have the team reinstated. But the bigger case is not just to reinstate the teams, it's to bring the whole program into compliance. So that's going to be those treatment and benefit issues. Um, you know, for example, they have a, a door in the cafeteria at Michigan State University that is a more direct path out of the cafeteria to campus, to classes. And the door has a sign on it that says football players only. Mm. And and there's a staff person that stands there next to the door and and actually has called out women saying, you don't look like a football player. And so then the women have to walk all the way around the building yes, and go out the general exit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's just, it's things like that, that you don't have to do that, right? But they go out of their way to make those football players, those men feel special. And in doing that, they make these women feel like second class citizens, you know, like they don't matter as much. Their sport doesn't matter as much. And, and so the bigger case at Michigan State is going to be for, you know, it's for all of those, those Title IX violations and to hopefully bring their entire program into compliance. And, you know, I think we were hopeful given what Michigan State has gone through in the last couple of years that they would be more respect, receptive to working with us and reinstating the team. But they have, um, much as they did in the NASA litigation, decided to go all in and they're going to fight this to the end. Hmm. And where do you stand with that? What, what stage of litigation are you? We uh, so uh, unfortunately, we were not successful on the preliminary injunction. Um, and so we are up on appeal at the Sixth Circuit right now. OK. The underlying litigation goes forward, though. So that is still moving forward. And Arthur, who do you have in your sights? Well, we just notified LaSalle University um, in Philadelphia, which stunningly, I mean, they they eliminated several men's and women's teams in September of 2020. And we were actually approached to take a look at it then. And based on the numbers we had then, it looked like they might actually be in compliance. Um, We didn't think there was necessarily a case there, so we didn't proceed. And then... Two weeks ago, I think it was, LaSalle announced it was reinstating the men's swimming and diving team, but no women's teams. Mm. Where even if it had been in compliance with Title IX before that, it sure isn't in compliance with Title IX after that. And according to the more recent numbers we've seen, it looks like all of the women's teams they eliminated now should go back because they put this swimming and diving team for the men back. So that's the first school we just notified. And then the other one is the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, which, according to the numbers, is already depriving women of about 145 opportunities to play sports. It would need to add 145 participation opportunities for women to reach equality. And it just eliminated its men's and women's tennis team for no good reason that I can understand or imagine. But in doing so, it created Title IX plaintiffs, women who were upset, understandably so, and realized they're being discriminated against. So these women are preparing to file a class action 
against the school unless the school puts their team and agrees to get into compliance. One final point of clarification, because you're mentioning small schools like St. Thomas, we're talking about big schools, Michigan State, Clemson. You said it applies to any school receiving federal funding of which, I don't know what word you used, most or? Almost, yeah, almost every school in the country. Explain how a small private school receives federal funding. Because any student who receives uh, like a Pell Grant from the federal government, if they, any federal funding, even just for the scholarship the student gets, that money goes to the school. And so the school is then receiving federal funds. It's it, could be, it could be $10,000. Yeah. Any amount. Yeah. Interesting. Which is, you know, also how some private universities, most private universities receive some amount of federal funding, either through some type of grant. Um, it, it doesn't matter where they accept the federal funds. If their college accepts federal funds, they are obligated under Title IX. So even if they get a grant, to the chemistry department it's yep that's been, enough this has been great arthur you mentioned what are we coming up on the 50th anniversary of title nine in 2022 Is that yes correct? that's right and you sit here as somebody involved in it thankfully not for 50 years yeah uh, <clears throat> and you think this is really very simple in terms of analysis you know fair is fair equal is equal what's the problem here and the notion that almost 50 years into it, so many schools in this country are in violation of the law. It's just stunning. And the primary enforcement mechanism, unfortunately, has been women whose teams are being cut. If the federal government would take one case and say, we're going after a school enforcing it into compliance, um, it could make an enormous difference. Mm. It would hit everybody up. Instead, there has been no ever. There has been no single lawsuit ever filed by the federal government to take away funding from a school or otherwise punish a school for violating Title IX athletics. And hopefully the Biden administration will be the first to do it. But I have no doubt that if the federal government actually went after, whether it was Clemson or Alabama or take your choice, and showed everybody else, we're serious now, getting compliance with the law, the schools would comply and get in compliance with the law. That's what we need now. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's also interesting that when Title IX was passed, there was, you know, a lot of congressional hearings about the athletic side of it in particular. A lot of attempts to exempt football from Title IX, a lot of attempts to, you know, make it so that it was going to be easier for colleges and Congress just kept saying, no, we mean equality. But one thing that did come out of that is all of these colleges come for, came forward and said, this is going to take time. You know, you want us to offer the same amount of sports for women as men. This is going to take time. And so they, they gave them five years to get their programs into compliance, to start adding women's teams. And we're still 45 years after that. And the majority of colleges in the country are not in compliance. And they're not adding women's opportunities you know, they're eliminating them. And I go back to the question I asked before. Is, it, is the excuse all, is it money? Is it just that, I mean, these women's sports don't matter? I mean, what what is always the rationale by these schools when you approach them? 
a lot of times it's money. Yeah. Sometimes it's ignorance. Yep. Um, and sometimes I can tell you when I, I spoke recently at the National Association of Swimming Coaches. Um, and I said to them, you're the coaches. You're the ones who are responsible, at least for your teams in compliance. And you know how your departments work. What needs to happen? What's missing? And they said, oh, it's very obvious. There's no accountability imposed from above on our athletic directors for getting the program into compliance with Title IX. There's none. And what you need is you need the college presidents and the boards to say, get, this is a federal law, make sure you're in compliance with it. Yeah. And if you don't, there will be penalties. I will tell you, in half of the recent schools where we've come in, <clears throat> within a couple of months of us coming in, the athletic director is gone. Because the athletic director was not making, was the one who screwed up and made, you know, was made the decision to cut teams and expose the violation of Title IX and wasn't in compliance to begin with. But you need presidents and boards to say to athletic directors, your job is not to first make money and win games. Yeah. You know, your job is first to make sure we're in compliance with all the federal laws that comply, including Title IX. And then within that context, sure, we'd love to have you make money with games if you want. But this is a federal law that comes first. And yeah, that's happening. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. One thing Arthur and I have noticed coming into this is that far too often we are the first time that I think the university president after we write a letter, we come in and point out the, you know, that they're not in compliance. It's really the first time the university president takes a hard look at what the athletic director has been doing. And before that, they just are sort of given carte blanche to run that program however they want. Um, and, you know, equity is not their first and foremost in a lot of these cases. Yeah, I would think a lot of athletic directors are worried about, you know, getting their sponsors, getting their donors, getting the football program in a bowl game, getting the basketball program in the NCAs, and then, oh, yeah, the other stuff, you know, down the ladder. So that is an interesting comment. And the key is emboldening them, them emboldening them to comply, right? Yeah. And make this a priority over some of the other stuff. Well, this has been great. You guys are, I appreciate you staying on the hour. Um, I've learned a lot and hopefully our listeners have, and I'm just really impressed. You guys are freedom fighters for this title nine. I love it. Well, Arthur Bryant and Lori Bullock, you've been great guests. Thanks for being on the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lori and Arthur special. As I keep calling them freedom fighters for college athletes that are underserved and get their sports cut and get axed by their schools. Great to hear from those guys. Hope you enjoyed it. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks to my producer, Brian Neal, my musical producer, Sam Brandt. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt and hope you're getting my newsletter. If you're not already, sign up for my Sunday 7 newsletter every Sunday at andrew-brandt.com. Apple podcast rankings and comments are always appreciated. And I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.